Ask a Pediatrician, a podcast aimed at helping parents be more confident and successful in these complex times. I'm your host, Dr. Hilary McClafferty, founder and executive director of the Academy of Pediatric Integrative Medicine. My guest is Dr. Kathy Kemper, professor of pediatrics at The Ohio State University, editor-in-chief of the journal Complementary Therapies in Medicine, and an internationally respected leader in the fields of integrative pediatrics and physician well-being. You know, I'm going to jump right in. Uh, My first question for you, I know that you have many skills and you have done incredible things in your career. Today, I want to focus on the clinical interaction and, and how parents can learn about complementary therapies and integrative pediatrics for their children. So my first question for you would be when you first began introducing integrative approaches into your clinical work, how did you go about that? Well, for me, it was pretty organic because I was interested in complementary therapies before I went to medical school. So during medical school, I was fortunate to do some training in clinical hypnosis with a psychologist who was on the faculty of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where I was in medical school. And so she had a small group of us learn hypnosis. So that was one of the skills that I was able to use from the very beginning of my practice, um, from the time I was a medical student on. Uh, Clinical hypnosis was something I was able to incorporate into my practice. And then when I did my fellowship at Yale, I did additional training in pediatric clinical hypnosis, which was very useful for pain control and anxiety control in situations like um, kids needing stitches in the emergency room. So it would help calm them down before we even put in the numbing medicine or when they needed their blood drawn and they were kind of bigger kids who were freaking out about the needle, um, I was able to use the skills of hypnosis to help them be calmer and feel um, more in charge of their experience so they were less anxious about it. So um, I was very fortunate that I had been able to learn those skills early on. It wasn't until later on when I was practicing that I was getting questions about herbs and dietary supplements, and so I started learning about those, and that is what led me to write the book, The Holistic Pediatrician. So where did you find your, um, so I have several questions for you about about this, so where did you find your sources of information? You know, when, when you initially were approached by parents with questions about dietary supplements, Um, Where did you turn to educate yourself? Um, I started off like I think most physicians do in looking at Medline and PubMed. Um, This was actually, I'm so old, Hillary. (laughs) In the days before computers were in common use in clinical (laughs) medicine, I went to the library. You mean those things yes, called books? Up in these big, they were almost encyclopedias, you know, where you'd look up um, an article, let's say chamomile, and so you'd, you'd look for chamomile and it would say, you know, go to this journal from this year, and then you'd walk to that part of the library and find that journal and take it off the shelf <laughs> and look it up. So, I mean, that was how I 
found things and then I found other resources um, that I could learn to trust. And there's many more resources now than there were then, but, you know, textbooks and old books on, on medical herbalism and um, books from the 1800s. And I mean, things like echinacea were used in standard American medicine in the early part of the 20th century. So it was really fun for me to find some of these really old articles in um, very old journals like JAMA from the 19, early 1900s. And then when you, when you realize that there, I mean, I would assume and think that there was sort of a paucity of, uh, of work around pediatrics. Did, is this one of the drivers for your, um, well, you're absolutely right. There was a paucity of articles in pediatrics. Um, but as you know, that's not unlike other medications. Most medications have far more data in adults than in kids, and pediatricians have gotten used to extrapolating from adult data, even though we've all learned that children are not small adults or large rodents. Very, very true. Very true. You know, the the field of pediatrics, you're exactly right. You know, we we work with the available data. Um, So, okay, so I have another question. When you were initially applying the hypnotic skills, the hypnosis skills into the clinical arena, how did uh, your colleagues react to that? Um, They were curious about it because very few of them had had the opportunity to learn those skills. Um, But I'll tell you, I'll give you one example, a story of um, general pediatric clinic when I was at Harborview in Seattle. And we had a boy who was about eight years old. So he was big. um, And he had been a victim of sexual assault. And he needed his blood drawn for an HIV test to see if he had uh, antibodies to HIV. Um, First of all, the boy had been traumatized because he'd been sexually assaulted. And then um, he'd been told that he needed to have his blood drawn, but he hadn't been told why. And I had been called into the exam room to help with him because they were trying to get four or five people to hold him down to draw his blood. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This little boy has already been traumatized. I don't want to be part of holding him down and assaulting him again. You know, that is not, that's not okay. I mean, medically, it's important to, to find out what's going on with him medically, but this, we need to find a better way. So I asked the team if I could have five minutes with him um, to see if we could do this another way. And they were all like relieved to take a break. And his mother was traumatized, the nurses, the president who was seeing him. And so I just went in the room and, and used the tools, very simple tools that I had learned, which were, um, you know, not putting him in a trance per se, but using language in a way to empower him. So, Rather than saying, you have to have the blood test, I said, um, we would like to do this to help you stay healthy, but you have a lot of control over this situation. Would you like to be sitting up or laying down when we draw your blood? And he said, sitting up. And I said, do you want to sit up on the exam table or sit up on the chair? And he said, I want to sit in the chair. I said, that's great. You can sit in the chair. Do you want the blood drawn out of your right arm or your left arm? 
And he thought for a minute and he said, my left arm. And I said, great, we'll draw it out of your left arm. Do you want your eyes open or closed? And so I kept asking him questions like that that didn't have a yes or no answer. He he had a choice, but every choice was about getting his blood drawn. There was never a choice of, do you not want your blood drawn? So within five minutes, he yeah. had made a series of choices that helped him feel like he was in control. And I opened the door and called the uh, phlebotomy team back in and said, he wants to sit in the chair. He wants his eyes open. He wants it drawn out of his left arm. He wants his mother sitting here. He wants me sitting here. He wants the blinds open and he wants you to count to three before you draw the blood. And everyone was just astonished as this young man was able to sit perfectly still and get his blood drawn without any fuss at all. And so, of course, all the residents in clinic said, what did you do? Because this was a very different little boy than they had seen five minutes before. So uh, mostly people became curious about what it was that was being done that was so helpful and, and helped kids cope so well. What a powerful story. And, and you found that the children, like the kids, they are um, immediately on board or did they think, what, what in the world is happening, you know, when you were um, introducing these new ideas? I think um, framing is really important. So I didn't say, I'm going to hypnotize you. I didn't use that word at all. I just said, oh, you know, you have a role to play in this. You have some choices here. And so what would you like to choose? So I just framed it in a way of giving him choices. Um, In other situations, I also have not always used the word hypnosis because it raises so many red flags with people about, you know, they've seen it at the state fair or on TV or something, and they have these ideas that they will behave in a silly way or an embarrassing way. And and so that's a negative image about something that can be helpful for them. So I sometimes I don't use words that I think can be triggering, um, but I will just begin um, helping kids use those tools. So for example, in, in the emergency room, I would take a syringe and I would say, um, can you count with me? Can you, do you know these numbers? And I would just gradually withdraw the plunger on the syringe to counting one, two, three, four. And so they would start counting with me and counting in a slow, calm way. They would join me in counting in a slow, calm way. So we'd count up to 10 and then I'd bring the plunger down and then we'd count backwards back from 10, nine, eight. And then I would begin giving them suggestions that as we count down, they might notice that they were feeling more and more relaxed. And they might notice that their hands were feeling warm and their feet were feeling warm And those were all signs that they were feeling relaxed and comfortable. And they could be curious about what other changes they might notice as we slowly counted down from 10 to 1 and then back up from 1 to 10. And so just getting into that rhythm, the kids would calm down 
And then we could, we could have a conversation about we need to draw your blood or we're going to put in some stitches and you might find it interesting. When we um, put in the numbing medicine, does it buzz or does it itch or what kind of feeling is it when we're putting in the numbing medicine? So rather than introduce the idea that it's going to be painful or stinging, introducing the idea that it's going to be an interesting experience. And to be curious about it so that they approach it rather than resist it. So I I didn't find any resistance among the kids doing that. Um, Later on, when I learned skills like therapeutic touch, I would simply say um, I learned this skill from an an old nurse, and she found it was helpful. I don't know if it's going to be helpful for you, but I can guarantee you it doesn't hurt And if you'd like to try it, I'm willing to try it to see if it will help you feel more comfortable. Would you like to try it? And they, almost everybody would like to try something that helps them feel more comfortable. I want you to know that I'm going to use your syringe technique the next time I go to work. As you think about some of the um, common conditions that kids have, you know, what are some of the therapies that you think are especially useful? And I know that's a broad question, but, you know, are there things that come to mind in condition, you know, that you saw over and over again that that parents should know about? Yes, I think the fundamentals are really important, regardless of the medical condition you're dealing with, whether it's uh, back pain or uh, abdominal pain or asthma or ADHD. Um, the fundamentals are what I call healthy habits in a healthy habitat. And so healthy habits are things like diet and exercise and sleep and stress management and social support and living in a healthy habitat. Um, oh, another one in the, in that fundamental is spirituality, by which I mean a sense of purpose and a connection to something greater than one's individual self. So it could be a connection to God or a particular set of religious beliefs. It could be a connection to nature or here in Ohio, it's connection to the Buckeyes. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. So, you know what, if I'm a parent and I, and I'm bringing a child in with, uh, let's say, um, you know, recurrent abdominal pain and I love this idea of healthy habits and a healthy habitat. Um, but I'm feeling, I'm feeling sort of overwhelmed. Um, how do you guide a parent into beginning an integrative approach? Abdominal pain is a great example. So, um, Constipation is a common underlying cause for abdominal pain, and one of the most common causes of constipation is dietary. Kids um, tend not to like or eat a lot of foods that are high in fiber, and they may not drink enough fluids to be well hydrated. So simply starting with diet, what is your child eating? And most parents immediately understand the connection between diet and abdominal pain. Um, It could be from when a baby has colic because um, the mom has been eating a lot of cabbage and she's nursing the baby and the baby has gas to, you know, 
when the child is able to choose his or her, her own foods, um, parents immediately understand the connection between diet and health. I think parents also understand the importance of sleep because we all know how we feel worse. We feel cranky. We feel fuzzy headed when we're not sleepy, sleeping well. Um, pain tends to be worse when we're, when we're sleep deprived. So in my experience, parents really understand the importance of these healthy lifestyle factors. And so often um, we reach for a medication first instead of exploring the healthy lifestyles, which to my mind is a much more expensive way of solving a problem. Um, And it also, I think, Mm -hmm. often disempowers families. If you tell a mom what foods she can give her child, whether it's pear juice or raisins or beans or whole grains, that gives her a lot more power than saying, here's a prescription that you can only get through a health professional. Absolutely. And, you know, the fact that the medical uh, professional is opening up the discussion to these concepts and these ideas i mean it's it's tremendously validating right for for the family to hear that coming from their healthcare well i think so and i also think it gives um it empowers families much more and it gives us many more options i think another um strategy that i've learned over the years of doing integrative medicine is focusing on the goals trying to reframe the problem as the goal. So if you come in with abdominal pain, your goal may be to be more comfortable or it may be to have more regular bowel movements or it may be um, to sleep better or it may be to get along with your brother better. Um, there's a lot of different goals that are possible that are can overlap with the abdominal pain. Um And, you know, as a pediatrician, you know that abdominal pain can also be a sign of a mental and emotional distress. So kids will commonly get abdominal pain if they have school anxiety. They get abdominal pain every morning at 7 a.m. when they're supposed to get on the school bus. Magically disappears at 10 a.m. when they're at home. You know, when it's too late for them to go to school, but it can also be a sign of more serious problems like sexual abuse. So to try to think of, we want the child to be comfortable. We want them to feel safe. We want them to feel secure. So once you start thinking in terms of goals, you also um, find many more strategies to do that than if you say, oh, abdominal pain, that's usually constipation will give you a laxative. That doesn't solve school anxiety. That doesn't solve sexual assault. So trying to broaden out and think more in terms of the goals, I have found really helpful in framing strategies to achieve those goals. What do you do? What do you say to parents who maybe bring a child in and they've been using a, a therapy? Let's let's say just for example, a dietary supplement that you have concerns about that you um, that you think may not be uh, safe, for example, how do you approach that conversation? I approach the conversation about dietary supplements and all therapies really in the same way. We try to think about what's the goal we're trying to achieve. And then we look at the different strategies and look at their 
uh, effectiveness and their safety. So if a therapy has proven safe and effective, we recommend it. So if somebody has a strep throat and we want them to be free of the strep infection so they don't get pyelonephritis or rheumatic fever or something, then we look at therapies that have been tested for strep and penicillin is really good (laughs) for eradicating strep. Um, So that is relatively safe unless you have a penicillin allergy um, and it's effective. So we would recommend penicillin. Um, If it's safe, but it hasn't been proven effective, like chicken soup for a cold. My grandmother was a big believer in chicken soup for colds. I don't know if your grandmother was, but many grandmothers are fans of chicken soup, but there's no randomized controlled trials of chicken soup. So we can't say from a scientific basis that it's effective and we can't say you need this recipe for chicken soup and you need three ounces four times a day. I mean, we simply don't know what the what the right dose of chicken soup is. So for something like chicken soup where we don't know that it's effective, but we do know that it's safe, I my view as a pediatrician is to tolerate it. So if a mom wants to give her child chicken soup for a cold, I say that's great. You know, that I'm sure that uh, makes grandma happy and it, it, it ties everybody together and strengthens family bonds. That's wonderful. So we tolerate it medically. If it is effective, but has side effects, that's where a lot of medications fall. And the most common example would be like chemotherapy for leukemia. We're very fortunate that chemotherapy has evolved over the last 40 years, and we now can cure most pediatric leukemia with chemotherapy, but it has a lot of side effects. So if something is effective but has side effects, we monitor it very carefully. The only time I tell somebody to avoid a treatment is if it's unsafe and ineffective. So for example, St. John's wort is not effective for ADHD and it can interfere with other medications and it can cause sunburns if you take St. John's wort and you're like working as a lifeguard or something, you're outside a lot. So if it's unsafe and has uh, no effectiveness, then I would say to avoid it. So I wouldn't recommend St. John's wort and I would recommend avoiding it for kids with ADHD. Now for kids with depression, it might be a different story. So you have to look at the child, you have to look at the condition. But that's the kind of uh, framework I think about all therapies, whether they're medications or herbs or meditation or exercise or really anything. How would you recommend a parent go about finding an integrative pediatric um, practitioner? First, I think um, parents would would probably appreciate having a textbook on their shelf that they could look things up on before they call somebody. So I think your book or uh, Larry Rosen's book or my book, there are more and more books on integrative pediatrics. And I would definitely look for one written by a pediatrician um, who takes an mm-hmm. evidence-based approach. And then I would, I would look for a board certified pediatrician who's a member of the American Academy of Pediatrics section on integrative medicine. We have, um, you know, more than 400, what for almost sort of more than 450 
board-certified pediatric members of the section at the, at this time. I'm sure the number is higher than the last time I checked. And um, how would they figure that out, Kathy? Well, they can ask their pediatrician. Um, pediatricians often know other pediatricians in their area. Um, they can contact the American Academy of Pediatrics. I believe the members of the section are listed. Um, or they could contact the section uh, staff person, Terry Salas. People who are seeing um, family physicians for their pediatric care, um, I would ask for a family physician who has completed um, either fellowship training or has completed residency training in integrative medicine. And there's, as you know, a number of residency trainings that offer training in integrative medicine, whether it's family medicine or pediatrics. So I would not be shy about asking about training. I mean, you'd want to know if your cardiologist had cardiology training. So I think if you're interested in integrative medicine, you want to know that they've had good training. As we're in the last few minutes here, any last thoughts or um, comments or advice for parents raising children in these complicated times as they're thinking about integrative pediatrics? Um, Yes, I would say we're living in stressful times, and stress management practices are really important. Um, I think sometimes we take our well-being for granted, but we know we can't eat junk food forever and, you know, avoid problems like diabetes and heart disease. Um, We need to be conscious about how we select our um, entertainment, what we watch on TV, what we listen to in terms of music, um, and even how we focus our thoughts. So I think spending time in gratitude practices is really helpful and spending time in compassion practices, extending goodwill for others, praying for other people can be really helpful and generate positive emotions that provide a reservoir of resilience for children and adults. And there are a number of apps that are available for um, smartphones. And there are also programs in the schools. Right now I'm working with um, Inner Explorer, which is a nonprofit group that is providing mindfulness training to over a, a million children in the United States through the schools. So that I think is a really wonderful resource. And if parents are interested, um, it's great to meditate with your kids. And I recommend the Inner Explorer website. I will include resources and links in the show notes to the things that we have talked about and that you have mentioned um, so that people can easily explore those. Kathy Kemper, thank you so, so much for your time today. Thank you you for inviting me. For more information and resources, visit our website at apim.org and click on the parent portal.